Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Ed Martin and the Pro-America Report. On The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for paying attention on Periscope. What you need to know today is the masks. I just put on a mask. I've got it on right now. Again, it's hard to hear me here on the radio, but I got the mask on. Uh, You know, finally, they're going to admit, the government, that we should all wear masks. Now, how stupid is it that we've been told for a month that somebody else should be wearing masks, but not us. How stupid are we? The American people have been given some poor leadership by some of the professionals. And I just want to say on this mask thing, this mask that I have in my hand was made by one of our uh, uh, Eagle leaders, uh, Phyllis Schlafly Eagle leaders down in Tennessee, Cecilia Desaunier. I had it on again on Periscope at Eagle Ed Martin. If you're watching, here's the thing. Our leaders told us for weeks now, that this disease is worth staying in for. And I get it. I've been listening. I'm one of the I'm, I'm the originator of the phrase Trump and verify. I think the president has earned our respect and it, he's worthy of our respect that we should stay inside. We should honor what he said, social distance, all that stuff. However, the Surgeon General of the United States, whose name I forget, which is good because I won't I don't want to say his name because I'm going to say he's a liar. He's been lying to us. He's been saying things like, well, we're not sure about masks. We're not sure about whatever. I don't know whether he's lying to us because he thinks that if he told the American people that wearing masks would help them, that there'd be a run on masks. Maybe that's why. But he better admit that soon because he's been lying to us for too long now. And here's the here's a simple fact. Put on a bandana, put on a T-shirt, make your own mask, whatever it is. If you have to go into a place, the grocery store, if you have to go to the hospital for something, you know, you have to take someone, somewhere, whatever it is, you have to go wear a mask. It can't hurt. In fact, it has to help. And the, and the simple fact is too many of the people who have been it leading us have not been telling us all the truth. They just haven't been giving us enough of the real deal. And we're going through all the kinds of things I just was teasing, but you know, you got this baseball out. We got my baseball tie on. It feels like it should be baseball season. We're all, you know, going through this great pause and the economy is, is stalled. It's stopped. And, and our mindset, here's the problem. Our mindset, those of you that listen to the pro America report, I say over and over again that the pro America mindset with a hat tip towards, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, Cernovich for using the phrase mindset so commonly now we all use it. But the pro-America mindset is optimistic. It's like the president said three nights ago, I want to be positive. I want to be the one who's got hope. We, we don't need more fear. We don't need more negativity. But it relies on the fact, the Trump and verify part of this, we have to be able to, to verify what they're telling us and know that it's true and trust them. And on the masks, it's just an outrage. Everybody should get a mask and you can make it out of a bandana and cloth. If you can get the the N95 ones, that's fine. But you should go ahead and get a mask and you should make it available for your, especially for your grandparents, especially for your, uh, somebody who's got an illness, whoever it is, and just, and and use a mask. Now for this period of time, uh, hopefully 
a couple of weeks, months, I don't know how long, where it's particularly uh, worrying that we haven't figured out how to handle everything. That, that's what we have to do. Which may brings me to what else you need to know. So what you need to know is, first of all, we need to ask our leaders in the swamp to stop lying to us. Stop lying to us. Give it to us straight. Tell us what's going on. We can take it. We'll believe you. But you can't lie to us too often or we're going to be the little, little boy that cried wolf. We train our kids. We train our families to not go let, let our, let our um, uh, uh, young people. You know, you can't lie to people. My, my wife will say it all the time to our kids. You can't lie because wrong, but also because then you can't be believed. But here's the other thing. Mike Lindell, two and a half days ago, announced, he went up there on the podium, that he turned most of his company, my pillow and all the related things, into a company that's making masks, making masks like this one. By the way, uh, Cecilia Desaunier, who's making these masks, if you're on Periscope, you're looking at it. She said, she told me she's making this. Uh, Joanne's has the fabric. It's a very simple um, uh, pattern, and it's really easy to do. And she's making these over and over again. I, I sent it out on my daily email, which you all should go and get if you're not at edmartinlive.com. Get signed up. I sent out on an email a message about Cecilia, and I got back from two different people. One is an alterations, an old tailor, an old-fashioned tailor, has an alterations uh, business, and he said he made his own um, blueprint, uh, blueprint, that's the wrong word, but his, uh, his um, you know, kind of a, a, a single piece of paper that shows how to cut the fabric and all, and he gave it to me. I put it out on the internet. So people are stepping up. Mike Lindell steps up. Typical American dream. Make, you know, have a tough life. He came from very little, have some setbacks. He builds a huge business. He makes his stuff in America, makes a ton of money. He's a great guy, great character. And he stands up there in the, in the uh, White House, uh, in the Rose Garden and says two things. One, I'm turning my business to make masks so that we can help people. It should be like universal. If, you know, if the Clinton Foundation started making masks, we should thank them. It should be universal. They're not, by the way. If the Gates Foundation, and they said they spent a billion dollars, the Gates Foundation, three years ago. Bill Gates Foundation spent a billion dollars three years ago, maybe four, on malaria. You know what the basis of fighting malaria worldwide is? Quinine, chloroquinine, hydro, hydroxychloroquinine. They're right at the center of this. They possibly, you know, the, the, these, these, someone called them Trump pills, these pills that could help at least fight the disease. And, they're, and now we're fighting with the bureaucrats about whether we have the right to try. Here's what Bill Gates and his team know. You can, you can ingest quinine pills every day for months and months and months, and you don't die on a ventilator. You don't die on a ventilator. You might have some symptoms, diarrhea. You might have some insomnia, whatever. But you don't die on a ventilator. And here we are having to fight our own F uh, FDA and others about whether these pills, hydroxychloroquine and, and the z pack and other things, can make it easier to fight this thing off. We're in a war, and it feels like, again, some of the people, Bill Gates Foundation, the Surgeon General, aren't telling us the whole truth. We can handle the truth now. We can handle the truth. All right, so back back to my point. Mike Lindell does two things in the White House uh, Rose Garden, and this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. One is he says, I'm turning my whole company, 75% of the company to make masks. The second thing he says is, I just want to thank the Lord for giving us this moment and this president, and we should you know, turn ourselves, and, and he basically gives about a maybe, maybe 45 second, could have been a minute, but it's probably 45 second, little sort of uh, homily, little preaching. Not inconsistent. If you went back and listened to George Washington speak, he would have talked about divine providence more specifically than Mike Lindell did. Well, you would have thought Mike Lindell had lit a fire, burned some of the roses in the Rose Garden. He, people were so offended and they attacked him. 
Now, the good thing is Mike Lindell is pretty darn sure of himself. He doesn't really need the validation of anybody else, so I don't think he cares. But we, the people, and back to what you need to know, the swamp media, the Surgeon General, they lied to us about masks. They try to pillar Mike Lindell. We have to get back to our basics. Look, the thing that holds this country together is what Mike Lindell said in the Rose Garden. Because you don't have an economy you don't have a military, you don't have a healthcare system, you don't have people that invent things that make things worth work like we have in America, the greatest nation ever, not because we're really cool genetics, but because we came together and we said, in this tradition, we will have a compact. It'll be based on the Judeo-Christian tradition. It'll be based on people abiding by the Ten Commandments and the rules of the, of the Bible. And when we do that, we'll trust each other, we'll have each other's back, we'll love each other enough that we'll do things for each other that will be out of our own self-interest because left to our own devices, we will have animals. We'll have animals or dictators or both. And so think about what this country is, where we have commerce, we have a military, we have, uh, we have freedom. It's the most extraordinary thing. And it's because of what Mike Lindell said in those few minutes. In those few minutes, what you need to know, we're going into the weekend, so I always feel bad because I'll be away from you, at least in terms of the radio. And, and I, might do a, uh, I might do a periscope over the weekend from home because it's my daughter's birthday tomorrow. She turns uh, 16 years old, sweet 16 during the uh, great pause. Uh, she'll at least remember it, I guess. So we've been doing some things to figure out how to celebrate for her because she can't have a party with her friends. She can't see my mother and my father and my my wife's family. It's a it's a kind of a it's, it's not sad. It's gonna be it's gonna be memorable. But we're gonna I'm gonna busy weekend. Maybe I'll do a periscope. But I know I'm not gonna listen. I'm not gonna be with you on the radio until Monday night again. So I'm getting this in. What you need to know is take the weekend this great pause. And remember what Mike Lindell said. Maybe you can't go to church. Maybe you're going to sneak out and break all the rules and go to church. I'm not telling you not to. But you can remember what's at the heart of America. What's at the heart of who we are. Because that's what we all need to remember. We know it. But we need to remember it. Because when we forget it, things get really off base. And that's what the left wants to do. All right. We got a great show again today. I hope you'll stay on. If you're watching on Periscope, you need to get on the radio and listen. But if you're on the radio, we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. Ed Martin and the Pro-America Report. On the answer, San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. You know, one of my favorite things, the listeners will smile when they hear me say that, is that when people will come on that I've written books or have books that interest me, I just love checking that out. And, you know, I had a conversation two week, 10 days ago, two weeks ago could be, where a friend of mine who is a great... Um, who is a great uh, kind of advocate for um, authors. She's in PR and she often takes up uh, clients and things. And she said to me, you know, I had a lot of authors who spent their time uh, slogging away to get a, uh, to get a book done. Suddenly they're not uh, able to get their uh, book out and they're, um, you know, kind of, and so there's lots of things going on anyway. I, and so I, this gentleman is was put into my path uh, today, Andrew Walther, uh, to talk about his book on the Knights of Columbus and their legacy. So welcome, uh, Andrew Walther. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, it's great to have you on. And for, first of all, um, for our folks, I'm looking at this. Uh, uh, I think we buried the lead. I'm looking at this uh, book, and it's uh, authored by you as well as Maureen Walther, which is probably your wife, which is probably the brains behind the operation. But so I didn't mean to to slight her uh, in terms of the in terms of this. But tell our listeners a little bit. I know, as I told you off the air, a lot about the Knights of Columbus. I'm a, a member myself. It's a, a Catholic organization within the church. But tell our listeners who may not know anything about it this history and and why it's important to understand, especially kind of at this time. Well, you know, the Knights of Columbus have, have been around for almost 140 years, started in 1882 mm-hmm. in New Haven, Connecticut. Yep. And it was an organization that really started, uh, was started by a priest in New Haven to help men to grow together in the faith, to help them provide for the families of, of uh, breadwinners who died an untimely death and to keep those families together and help them keep the faith. They would often be split up and sent to institutions that were non-Catholic uh, or to relatives and so on, and, and this would potentially uh, take them away from their faith. And also, you know, they, they were very clear very early on within the Knights of Columbus that the uh, that a good Catholic man, a good Catholic in America could be a good citizen. This was something that was very much um, under debate and in question in 19th century New England. There was a know-nothing governor in Connecticut in the middle of the 19th century. And so coming out of that that whole era with uh, Catholics under some scrutiny, this organization was founded and was named for Columbus because he was the figure in American history who was very clearly Catholic and also at that time, very popular within American history books. We're talking with Andrew Walther, and the book, again, is The Knights of Columbus, an illustrated history. It's, um, it's a great history, and as you point out, um, in many ways, it's, a little, it's, it's, it's in stark contrast to today. If you came to him, if you came and dropped into America in the early part of the last century and maybe around the time, say, of the Spanish flu, when people were sick and all, you didn't have as much government services. And so you had to have uh, people in your life that you could rely on, extended family for sure. But most often it was uh, parishes and, and churches, you know, whatever denomination you were in. And that was a real space. If you look back at the Knights of Columbus, and I have looked, <clears throat> is that, um, excuse me, is that this, uh, as you say, kind of helping each other. If you came to America and you were an Irish Catholic, like my parent, my great grandparents, you you relied on other Irish Catholics. That's how it worked, and they were they were your safety net, and uh, and so it was extraordinary. And over time, the Knights of Columbus and its service included hospitals, included uh, all kinds of uh, philanthropic or uh, civic uh, uh, involvement. Uh, you know, Andrew, how do you see today the you know. Um, it feels like a lot of our, our our civic organizations, whether you say the Knights of Columbus or uh, the you know the JCs when I was a kid growing up, or the you know Kiwanis Club, they feel less active and connected to the community. Is that true, or is it just how it feels? And is is part of what you're writing this book and putting this together is to inspire people to re- reinvigorate them? How does that fit together? Well, you know, I can't speak for other organizations, but I can tell you the Knights of Columbus is unique among the kinds of organizations you mentioned in that it has grown year in and year out uh, since the 1970s. And so while a number of organizations have, have seen you know serious declines in membership and so on, the Knights of Columbus is an organization that continues to grow and continues to be very, very active in the United States and around the world, in, in Canada and in Mexico and the Philippines and the Caribbean and so on, in Korea, France, 
uh, you know, there's a, there's a long list of countries where our guys are doing great work. And, you know, I think what you see with the Knights of Columbus, for example, in this COVID crisis, is you see us leaning forward and doing things that help the church and help the community. And so we have volunteers helping to deliver meals to people that are uh, receiving food from food banks or, or need shopping, uh, groceries dropped off, things like this. You see our members giving blood. We were the organization that pioneered blood drives in the 1930s. And our, our members are, are leaning forward to give blood now with the great shortage that there is in this current crisis. So I think what you uh, what you see is that in communities around the country, people know the Knights of Columbus for the work that they do locally. But at a national level, you know, we've been very, very clear in terms of our uh, support, for example, for uh, religious freedom, going back to the 19th century yeah. and most recently right. for you know, for the folks in Iraq and Syria who were persecuted by ISIS, and we've raised more than $25 million. We've, uh, you know, been very supportive of, uh, well, actually, we were were the driving force behind uh, Secretary Kerry referring to this as genocide in 2016. We worked on supporting that, you know, legislation that passed Congress unanimously, not once, but twice, both in terms of a genocide designation and then in terms of a Relief and Accountability Act in 2018 for the folks that were persecuted by ISIS. So, you know, we've been very, uh, very, very active in terms of our international and national work, but also the local work in, in you know, towns and villages and cities all across this country. I would talking with Andrew Walter, and I should have said, I don't know if I said earlier, if you go to, uh, um, the, I'll put up the website, nightsgear.com, uh, you can find the book there. It's called uh, The Knights of Columbus, an Illustrated History. Uh, Andrew T. Walter and Maureen H. Walter, uh, uh, and a foreword by the, the head of the Knights of Columbus, Supreme Knight Carl Anderson, who's a, pr- a fairly prominent, uh, both, uh, I'd say, civic and, and, uh, and you know, faith uh, leader. Um, so, Andrew, uh, one more question. How, how does the... Um, how do the Knights of Columbus uh, fit into um, the church? Tell people, I'm getting it. I got a text from somebody about this. Tell them how it fits into the church. People say, well, what's the Knights of Columbus? Is it a religious order? You know, what are you doing? I, pull back. You and I know it because we sure. are, are part of it. But pull back and explain to people what exactly how it fits into the church. Well, the Knights of Columbus is an organization that is made up of Catholics, and so from the beginning, it was founded by a priest in 1882 at St. Mary's Church in New Haven, Connecticut. Now, the priest made very clear from the beginning that he wanted the layman to run this organization. They offered him, you know, you should be the Supreme Knight. He said, no, thanks. You guys run it. He was the Supreme Secretary for a time, then became the chaplain. And so the organization is run by laymen. But it is very closely aligned with the Catholic Church. It is an organization that puts the Catholic faith first, the membership requirements, or, you know, that it, one be a, a man over the age of 18 who's a practical Catholic in, in union with the Holy See. So basically, we, you know, we are an organization that is Catholic, that is aligned with the Catholic Church, and that sees faith as fundamentally important both to our founding and to our continued mission today. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, it's it's great. I'm glad you did this book too because I think people will be interested. Now, Holy Week, um, how how will the Knights of Columbus be participating in in this time? I guess in the in the sort of sh- uh, lockdown and everything in these days. I mean, are 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 your members able to do much, or is every, like the rest of us? Are they sort of uh, holding for a bit? Well, you know, I think in in most places, in terms of church services. Uh, 
folks are participating virtually. They're they're uh, you know live streaming or, or watching television and and seeing the uh, church services they would normally attend. We're also putting out a, a great deal of material to our guys in terms of uh, material that can help them with Holy Week, <clears throat> spiritual reflections. Uh, other other material that would be very very useful to them at this at the holiest time of, of the year, and people can can go and take a look at all of this at kfc.org, and of course uh, the book you can as you mentioned the website, but you can also get that at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and hmm. you know wherever wherever good books are sold. Very good. Well, great. Well, thank you for coming on and, and have a great uh, Holy Week and a blessed Easter. Appreciate it very much. Andrew O.T. Walther, uh, whose the book is The Knights of Columbus and Illustrated History. Uh, and the subtitle here is A Story of Faith, Leadership and Service. It's a great it's a, it's a great story of American uh, uh, ingenuity that the organization, as you mentioned, started by a young priest and then grew over time to be this uh, international organization in many ways that based, you know, headquartered in America, but having an impact all over the world. So uh, good for you. And thanks for taking the time to come on and uh happy easter we'll take a we'll take a quick break and be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report be right back ed martin and the pro america report on the answer san diego Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is Mike Davis, and Mike's been on a long time on my show. Wherever I am, I get Mike Davis on because he's, well, he's smarter than me, and he knows a lot of stuff, and uh, also in particular on the issue of both judges as well as on the issue of what's happening uh, with um, with the um, uh, tech companies and what they're doing. He's just really good. So we had a piece over on townhall.com, our sister site for the Salem Radio Network, and I'll, I'll put that up on social media. And uh, Mike, welcome back. How are you? Thank you, Ed, and I think a lot of people would disagree that I'm smarter than anyone. So, but thank you for having me. <laughs> I don't know. That's what all the smart guys say. That things like that. That's why I say it too. But hey, I know you started. I love it. You started this uh, column with the famous phrase, and actually got it right because I misquoted. It's Rahm Emanuel in 2008. He said, "Quote: You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. I mean, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before." End quote. Uh, my thing about this, Mike, is when I see your piece, and we'll talk about big tech and what they're doing on how they're trying to capitalize on this i also think uh conservatives need to think about how to in a crisis to make progress directionally for the things they did we'll talk about that in a minute but tell me walk us through how big tech is uh trying to use this crisis and what you see them doing well yeah so i'm running what's called the internet accountability project or iap and one of the things that we're really focused on is big tech and how how they become too big and too powerful and too greedy in our society. And that's Google, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, in particular with Google and Amazon. They're using this crisis. They're trying to exploit this crisis uh, to their advantage. Um, Google's already, uh, it's, it's a monopoly. It's a monopoly in search. It's a monopoly in advertising. They're, they're a monopoly many different ways. And they're trying to use this uh, this this crisis to say that People who, who question big tech's bad acts, whether it's their anti-competitive behavior, whether it's their workplace practices, whether, whether it's the sweetheart deal that they got from Congress in 1996 called Section 230 that protects them. It's Uncle Sam, Sam coddling big tech, uh, and it, it protects big tech from defamation lawsuits based upon what people are posting on big tech's websites, yet big tech still makes money targeting advertisement to those uh, def- def- defamatory posts. But So what 
Google and, and Amazon and other big tech companies are now demanding is they say that they want the end of tech lash. They want tech lashes that when people are critical of big tech for their bad acts. And Google and Amazon right. and other big tech companies are saying that, that, that somehow this needs to stop during this uh, coronavirus crisis that, uh, you know, apparently if we're, you know, if we're, if we're still criticizing big tech during this time, maybe we're un-American or unpatriotic. I'm not sure what their argument is. But I would say that now is uh, now more than ever, ever we need to be uh, making sure that we're holding big tech accountable because they are a monopoly. I mean, look at Amazon. Amazon yeah. is the, the biggest online retailer on the planet. They have a 40% market share. They're, you know, they're huge. And as all these mom and pop shops around the country are closed down because of coronavirus, Amazon is becoming bigger and more powerful. They're a trillion dollar corporation. And Jeff Bezos is the richest man on the planet. The CEO of Amazon, the richest man on the planet is worth $90 billion. And yet, you know, when his employees are being furloughed or because they or, or they, they don't want to go into their factories that are uh, contaminated with coronavirus, instead of just giving them money, giving them money out of the, the corporation, give them time off. He did a GoFundMe account. I mean, this it's ridiculous. What they're, doing. They're, put, <laughs> right, they're, right. Putting, they're putting profits over their people. I mean, look at these factories around the country. They have all these workers in these factories. They're they're not following federal guidelines on social distancing. They have these truck drivers coming in. And these workers are terrified. There's coronavirus in several of these factories. The Kentucky governor had to close one of them. There's uh, coronavirus in the, Stat the Staten Island, New York factory. And in instead of keeping the employees and other workers in the loop, they're hiding it. They're covering it up. They're not providing uh, hand sanitizer. They'd rather they'd rather price gouge and charge 350 percent or more on, on hand sanitizer that they have going across the conveyor belts and not provide hand sanitizer to their workers and employees in these in these factories. It's crazy. Now, we're talking with Mike Davis, and I want to encourage our listeners to go to theiap.org, which is the Internet Accountability Project, iap.org, if I'm saying it not clear enough for folks. Um, we're talking with Mike Davis, who's the founder and the president of that organization. And, um, uh, Mike, here, here's my question for you. As a matter of uh, policymakers, you know, you know from your experience having worked in the Senate and, and, and knowing your way around the Capitol Hill and the judiciary, too, that's a different beast in a way. The grassroots, it's weird, more and more, and even in this crisis time, it's not weird, but it's descriptive, more people are getting more comfortable and dependent on these big tech companies, right? I mean, you, you number the number of people, I don't know, has Google or Facebook bought Zoom yet? Because Zoom is about, uh, you know, seems to be the most popular thing of all. But Amazon.com, as you point out, uh, uh, you know, uh, Facebook, all these things, and they're getting more comfortable. How do you get, how do you find that the people react? Are they, are they getting dissatisfied enough with the power imbalance to understand it? Or is it too, you know, what can we do? You see what I'm saying? Here's the problem. I don't I don't think uh, many of us I didn't know this until uh, I started the Internet Accountability Project. I didn't realize how much personal data you're giving away to these big tech companies, how much of uh, information about yourself you're giving away to Google for your so-called free Gmail, or your free Internet searches. They're not free. You're giving away highly valuable data. It's the, Google has become one of the biggest corporations on the planet, one of the most profitable corporations on the planet, not because they're giving us, not because they're giving us stuff for free. It's because they're making a lot of money off of our personal data. They're commoditizing it. The difference between Google and other 
places like Apple, for example, Apple actually sells you a product. You get an iPhone, you get an iPad, uh, you you know you you get all the the the, the you know i iTunes, everything that Apple sells to you, you have to pay for it. With Google, what they sell is you. They sell you to advertisers. They they find out as much information as they can about you, have a digital dossier on on you as a user, and they sell that to advertisers, and that's how they make all their money. And so people need to understand what's the price of free. And if people are willing to do that, that you know, that's their choice. But, you know, I think the issue is, is people don't understand how much of their, their personal information they're giving away to Google uh, for, the, for a free Gmail or free Internet search. All right. And now uh, we're talking with Mike Davis again, the IAP.org. Um, what is it they tried to do or in the, did they try to do it in the initial sort of coronavirus aid bills? And as you did they get What did they get away with? What are you seeing coming? What, what should we be on the lookout for? And, and maybe kind of if there is another round, uh, as a friend of mine said, pigs at the trough trying to do stuff, guaranteed they're going to try it in the next round. But what have they tried to do? What are they going to try? What are they going to try to do? It's not what they're doing in these bills. It's that they're calling for the antitrust law enforcers at the Department oh. of Justice, at the at the FTC, the state attorneys general across the country. They're trying to they're, they're trying to they're trying to create this political narrative that because we're in a coronavirus situation, we're in a crisis with this coronavirus, that these antitrust law enforcers need to back off. That you know, essentially, what big tech is demanding is antitrust amnesty right now. They they don't think that the antitrust laws should be enforced against them right now because of coronavirus. And our response mm, and, is, and, is that now more than ever, when you see Amazon charging price gouging on on Clorox wipes and hand sanitizers, uh, you know, we have market failures because of the coronavirus. This is when our law enforcers, our antitrust law enforcers, need to step up. Is uh, is there any indication right now? I mean, you, you, what you're basically saying is they're trying to make an argument publicly, hoping that they can get the regulators to say, yeah, yeah, it's a crisis. Let's do that. And your point is, let's make our voices heard now saying, no, 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 that's not what will help us in the long run, nor what's good for us. That's that, that's kind of your point here now, right? That, that That is the point. There have been very good people in the United States Senate, like Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri, Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, they have been leaders in this fight. And the state attorneys general across the country on a bipartisan basis have been investigating these antitrust issues. And it's time for it's not time for us to back down. It's it, it, frankly, it's it's time for the Department of Justice and the FTC. If we even still have an FTC, it's time for them to step up and start enforcing the antitrust laws. We have market failures with Got coronavirus. It. We have price gouging. We have monopolies becoming bigger and more powerful because these mom and pops are going to be ran out of business with with these shutdowns across the country. And Amazon and Google are getting more more powerful, more powerful, more profitable, yeah. and, and bigger. I see it. All right, Mike Davis. Again, it's uh, uh, theiap.org. Check it out there. Thanks, Mike. I got to run. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Be right back. Ed Martin and the Pro America Report on the Answer San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast launched by Phyllis Schlafly, who served as an articulate voice for traditional values for more than seventy years. Upholding that legacy and himself an author, national speaker, and attorney, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The coronavirus, which started in China and arrived in America, has thrown our economy and even our presidential election into uncertainty. 
In an incredibly short period of time, the virus spread out from China into South Korea and Europe. Fear of the contagion quickly spread throughout the United States after a few cases were reported. But the quickest negative impact came to our economy as our stock market fell dramatically. This is nothing to brush aside, but let's remember where this whole thing came from. Globalism is the real culprit here. It's actually ironic that the globalism that Donald Trump was elected to confront has struck back in this big way. Now, President Trump and all Americans are being forced to deal with the disastrous free trade that makes all economies so dependent on the economies of other nations. This dependency makes containing a contagion like the coronavirus all the harder. It never had to be this way. We enjoyed prosperity for centuries without having reckless trade with the likes of China, South Korea and Italy. Those economies almost immediately took a nosedive with the spread of the Wuhan coronavirus. Town after town in Italy quickly fell under quarantine. These aren't just remote villages, by the way. A lot of these towns are near the trading center of Milan. The Italian stock market tanked in just one day. Panic and isolation are not good for any business or for living together. Eventually, the entire nation of Italy was put under quarantine. For a virus coming from China, its devastating impact on distant Italy should have been a warning to all Americans. If this pandemic became so severe in Italy so quickly, it's no wonder that the rest of the world was and should be worried. I'm not saying we have to halt all trade and isolate ourselves like North Korea. The lesson we need to take away from the coronavirus is that we've got to be smart about how we deal with other nations. The blindly open borders lauded by globalists are not the way of the future. It very well could be the way to destruction if we aren't intentional with our foreign policy. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. When it comes to international trade, other countries have long been taking advantage of the American people and our generous spirit. At phyllisschlafly.com, we've got strategies to balance trade and protect the interests of American companies, resources, and citizens. For more, go to phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here to Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. I have a a breaking update. Breaking update. I I didn't get a chance to ask Mike Davis about it. I will next week. I think I'll have him back on. Uh, But the news is this. Very important news. I I think I told you five days ago, four days ago, maybe Monday afternoon, um, how important it is for certain aspects of life to continue. And we've talked about that in general. People are, you know, their own lives, the things they're doing, whatever. It's very tough. But there's also government needs to keep functioning, broadly speaking. And one example of that that I focused in on, honed in on, is judges. I think I told you on Monday there are 37 uh, dist- 37 Article Three judges pending before the Senate. They were nominated by President Trump, sent up to the Senate. They need to be considered by the Judiciary Committee with a hearing. Then they need to be voted out of the Judiciary Committee and taken up by the Senate. And I don't want any excuses from the Senate. They don't have anything else to do. The, the Senate staff, who are, are they, the Senate staff, especially the Judiciary Committee, are very smart. These are the top notch. You, you go into work in the Senate and you can work your way up on a senator's staff. First of all, it's a big deal to be on a senator's staff. But then second of all, you get onto like judiciary committee. It's a big deal. It's a very impressive. Lots of impressive people around there. And they work hard. They're all working from home. 
And one of the big things that they have to do is draft legislation, review legislation, uh, uh, analyze legislation, et cetera. There's some research going on. But a big thing is, in the case of a Republican president, a Republican Senate, is appointments, in particular, confirming judges. So my point here is all those Senate staffers, Judiciary Committee and the individual senators staffers, can work on this from home. They can do the research. They can put together the dossiers and everybody can be examined. And then, and this is the big thing. I said this earlier in the week, we should have hearings for these judges, all 37, now 38, I'll tell you in a minute, in wherever, wherever it can be. If they want to have them in, in Washington, that's fine. Have them in the big, the Senate, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing room is massive. I mean, it's huge, like two football fields. And you could have lots of social distancing. You could have lots of video cameras. You can have lots of participation, live stream it on C-SPAN, wherever. And there is a tradition of this, by the way, in the old days, not so long ago, there, there would be if the if they a single senator can chair a hearing of a judge. One of the most famous in my recollection, not famous, but you'll know it when I say it is 2006. Then a nominee to the Court of Appeals, Gorsuch, had his hearing held by one senator, Lindsey Graham, who now is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Here's my point. Do your job. Do your job, senators. We want judges confirmed. We don't want to wait. Uh, we don't want to hear that things are bad. You're home. That's fine. Your staff is at home. That's fine. The research and, and the necessary work to have hearings can take place. Hearings can then take place. One senator can come in and, and chair a hearing. They should do it. Because today, very big news, very big news, the president announced a nominee, and this is great, he, no he nominated a judge for the Federal Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., and this is the best thing that I've seen in a long time, and it's the first time in years, over 10 years at least. And his name is, his name is Justin Walker. He's already a judge on the, court, uh, the district court in Kentucky, and he's clerked for uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh when he was on the Court of Appeals and Justice Kennedy, and here's the thing. He's a, he's a judge out in Kentucky where he was a professor at the University of Louisville. And my point here is usually these D.C. Court of Appeals, very important. So the Supreme Court is the ultimate court of appeal. And right below it is the D.C. Court of Appeal and other circuit courts. You know, the Eighth Circuit is the one I clerked on out in Missouri. And it covers Missouri and Iowa and, and North and South Dakota and all. And um, we all know about the Ninth Circuit and all. But the D.C. Circuit gets a lot of the cases appealed because that's where government is centered. So it's very important. But be, other than the Supreme Court, it's the most important uh, court in many ways. So this guy's coming to it, not from the swamp, but from out in the in the in the Kentucky, out in the country. And he's great. Thirty seven years old, highly credentialed, ready to go. And it, it was um, it is really, really um, perfect. And here's the thing we need out to get we need him to get confirmed. It needs to happen. And so my call to the Senate is, OK, guys, this is a great pick by the president. Mitch McConnell likes him. Rand Paul likes him. Those are the two home state senators. Other people like him. <clears throat> Fine. Go. Lindsey Graham is up for reelection this year, so he's going to want to keep everybody happy on the conservative side. Fine. Let's go ahead and get this thing set up. Let's go ahead and get these hearings set up. Let's let's do all the work. He was just confirmed last year, a year ago to the lower court. So they have a DOS. You know, they have the plenty of things on. They don't have to do much research. And let's get him through. So my call right now is the American people. We know everybody's, you know, kind of in the great pause. There's lots of things to worry about, but the basics still need to be done. President Trump is still having to do the basics. He's appointing judges. You know, he's got the military outside of Venezuela because there's been problems there. He's got this and that and the other thing, all kinds of things. We know we're focused on the war, the war against this virus. 
But we want the judges. We want the judges confirmed. So keep working. America, the Senate, a message to the senators, a message to the senators from we the people is keep working. Uh, You know, we want the people's work done. And that means confirm these judges. And so I'm looking forward to it. I've sent some uh, inquiries in. I've I've actually given some uh, advice on this to some of the folks I know that work in the Senate staff saying, hey, here's how you could do it. Here's what the people would say. And here, let me tell you one more detail. One of the reasons we need to keep confirming judges and doing the work of the Senate is so that the American people see that and feel good about the fact that their senators are, are doing something. They're all getting paid. They're all getting paid. But also, just in case we get a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, just in case in the next six months, we want to have laid down the sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 tr- the tradition, the, the working pattern that we're just going to do our jobs. Because the left is going to say, oh, no, no, we can't do anything. We got to stop. We got to not do it. We need to do, do it. Senators, the senators need to do their jobs. They need to do their jobs and do them well. And do them well. All right. Thank you for listening. As always, thank you to Noah, our fearless technical director, a million moving parts. He keeps them all going. Thank you for that. And make sure you go to TheAnswerSanDiego.com to get the show as a podcast. Also, Google Play, iTunes, you can get wherever. Look, make sure you're looking for the Pro-America uh, Report, Pro-America Report. And you can track it down there. And we will be back in just a few days. Have a great weekend, everybody. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then.